Hi, you're listening to WRBH Radio, 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sense. And here in the studio with me today, I have Dr. Howard Conyers. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so glad that I was able to connect with you and get you in the studio here. I have been following your your food career, if you will, um, with fascination since uh, I went to something at Southern Food and Beverage Museum, and they told me all about this amazing barbecue guy that <laughs> was a scientist. <laughs> and I said, well, barbecue is a science. Barbecue is a science. <laughs> it's an art. So so tell me, who is this scientist meets barbecue guy? Who are you, who am Dr. I? Howard? Um, so this barbecue thing is something I grew up in South Carolina doing. My family been doing it for years, and my community was doing it for probably almost 100 years at least. It's, I mean, at least 100 years. I mean, I could trace my own barbecue lineage pretty far back. But what I will say is what I learned about barbecue I learned on a farm, and that what helped me become a rocket scientist. Okay. How does that? It doesn't make sense, right? But being on a farm, you learn math and science because you got to apply it to solve real problems in real time. When you're in a rural area and you have limited resources, you try to make solutions to get the job done. And so those undercurrents like really helped shape my life for math and science and the love of it. So what kind of farm was it? It was a small family farm, but we grew corn, wheat, soya beans, and what the favorite thing I think we grew in my family was sweet potatoes. Oh, and my I father was growing them for like 35 years. The same seed, it's an heirloom seed that was passed down, and he, he's probably one of two last farmers in the community keeping that variety going. Wow, I love that, and I love I love sweet potatoes. Um, do you eat? Do you ever eat the greens from your sweet potatoes? I did it last year, ironically, and then this day. This lady um, wanted wanted to get some from my father back in South Carolina, so he was really surprised that people eat sweet potato leaves, and it's a great thing to have. I feel like there's so much out there that we kind of forget that we can eat because it's not in the grocery store, and maybe we had a generation that's maybe did a little too much grocery shopping, and we realized that we forgot that some of these things we can eat and have been eaten for generations. I mean, yes, for like this time of the year. I mean, I love persimmons. And people, I don't know if everybody appreciates persimmons, but I really love persimmons this time of the year when I go to the farmer's market. Um, it's just something about them. It's a unique taste, a unique flavor, but it's something that we should kind of take more heat of. People see it, I don't want a persimmon. I don't like that texture. But it's almost like, it's not a mango, but it's almost like a mango of the South, I would say. The mango of the South. <laughs> I think the persimmon uh, marketing board is going to call here. <laughs> well, you know, I have a bunch of persimmons on my tree, and I, I, have, I, like, I keep looking at them. And with the heat and the sun, and every now and then it gets a little wet, and I'm trying to figure out when is the, like, the perfect day to say this is when to get it right before it just... Falls and smashes all over. But it's also the depending on what kind you have. Yes. It's, it's generally two kinds that you have. One is kind of like a little egg shape, and then another one is a little more like a little flattened mm-hmm. circle, almost like a like a globe. No, not a globe, but a flattened circle. And if you don't, the one that's like an egg, you pick it too early, then your mouth has a very funny feeling when yeah, you eat it. Yeah, it kind of is not good for you. It's it doesn't. Kind of t- toxic. <laughs> it, 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 it seems like it doesn't taste good that way. 
Well, I don't even know what kind we have. I just keep watching them, looking for the color to look right. And then I'm like, I hope I can catch it right at the right moment. But um, it's not something I grew up with figs and all these other things. But persimmons were not something that we usually had in our garden. So I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do with them when I do finally decide to pick them. A lot of people, they actually had an old like persimmon beer. It's been around for a while in the South. You'll be surprised how long persimmon's been in the southern United States. And, um, you know, if we look at all these things, I, I don't even know where persimmon came from or um, how it, it got here. But, you know, it, God bless whoever brought it to us and introduced it to yeah, us. Yeah, right? that's a good thing. <laughs> well, so, Jeff, let's, let's go to, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, growing up in South Carolina and the kind of food that y'all are having in South Carolina I feel like everybody who lives in a, a food town or a food state or a food community, we know how to identify with it. And um, everyone says, I live in a food town or a food community because it's what you, whatever flavors you grow up with. So when we're talking about, you know, your hometown in South Carolina, what are we talking about? What, what were you eating? Uh, rice was always present, heavily present. <laughs> Probably more so than that's probably the starch that we ate the most. Um, lunch, dinner, a meal wasn't sometimes a meal if you didn't have rice. And we had different types. We had sometimes we just had plain rice. We have yellow rice. Sometimes we have perlo rice. Uh, you know what perlo rice is? Is it? It's kind of sticky. No, it's not no. sticky, but it has like meat and um, sausage. Oh, and oh perlo rice. Perlo yes, rice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you have that. Um, Fried fish, baked fish. No, we don't have baked fish. We had a lot of fried fish. We had a lot of seasonal vegetables. And so I, what I would say, we had a lot of vegetables growing up. We had okra, butter beans, peas, silver queen corn, uh, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, sweet potatoes, boiled peanuts. Um, Which my sisters were all excited because they got a sack this week and they were going to boil some peanuts this weekend. (laughs) I love boiled peanuts. Some people hate it. It's not my thing. I can't love them. That that texture? I don't know. I just don't like them. (laughs) I love it. I love boiled peanuts. I love eating watermelon, spitting the seeds out. Um, I'm not a seedless watermelon type person. Eat peaches. Nothing like a sun-ripened peach. Well, so, you know, all the things that you're saying are the things that we grew up here in South Louisiana with. And we think about, you know, Southern food and the Southern food experience. But it's so interesting to me how, depending where you are in the South, we're using some of the same ingredients and the flavors might just slightly be different or we feel that ours is totally better and totally different than the person in the state next door. We do feel that way, but um, when you start really looking and boiling it down, everybody has a lot of the same base ingredients. I would say Louisiana has a different feel from the rest of the South when you look at, like, Mississippi on over. Mississippi to South Carolina to the East Coast kind of has a lot of similarities. When you look at Louisiana, you have two other dominant cultures that Influence the cuisine. Well, three other dominant cultures. I can't leave about the uh, indigenous communities. Absolutely. You got you got to have them in the equation. You cannot omit them from their contribution to Southern food. We do it a lot, but it's something I hope through some of my work that I'm able to actually talk about that. Um, then in Louisiana, you have the French and you have the Spanish influence, and you can't really like separate some of those things out. 
And, you know, when we think about the West African influence in our cuisine. But of course, you got to have the West. I mean, and, and, you know, that is, you know, the basis of a lot of our uh, regional cuisine. And uh, I feel like that those flavors, particularly from West Africa, that maybe made their way through the Caribbean and here to Louisiana, I kind of sit there and go, but, you know, some of those flavors made it over here, but... I think they still seem a little bit different, say, when we go to the Carolinas versus them when we're here in New Orleans. What yeah. is it about that? So, I mean, in Southern food, the African-American contribution, a lot of my work over the past few years has been in that regards, looking at the contributions they made. What I look, what I see about the Carolinas when I look at, like, particularly, I look at two distinct cultures. I, in the Carolinas, I look at the Gullah Geechee culture, and in Louisiana, I look at the Creole culture. What is different in the Carolinas is we didn't have any, we didn't have the Spanish and French influence like we had, like you have here in Louisiana. And that is very significant to the food ways. But you will still see the same basic elements. And I hate using the same analogy all the time, but in Louisiana, in South Carolina, you have red rice. In Louisiana, you have jambalaya. And in West Africa, in the Senegambia region, you have jollof rice. Jollof rice. And so you see it looks very similar. Sometimes you see seafood in it. You see pork in it. You see vegetables in it. But it has that same element. But the flavors are two very distinct flavors. And, you know, so many times I'll have people say, oh, well, jambalaya came to us from Spanish paella. And some could say that. Some could also say that it came to us from West Africa and that, that jollof rice. And you start to see that it's the it, a lot of it is the ingredients that are brought over and how the communities where those in, ingredients are being introduced are changing how they're being used. Yeah. So, I mean, like okra is one of those common things in the South that is clearly West African. And how they put it in a pot and the, this one-pot style cooking with stews, you see that a lot throughout the South. And you see that throughout the Caribbean. I mean, throughout the Caribbean, you'll see it. You'll see it in the Caribbean. You'll see it in West Africa. You, it just kind of, when you, when you take the things apart, it really helps you understand. Like, flour was not a big thing used in, in the African community. When you go back to Africa, you don't see flour in a, in a gumbo pot. No. Um, you see it now in Louisiana, but that tells you the, what the French bring into Yeah, we didn't it. have flour at first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're making that roux. And so you have to think about that. Some, but sometimes when you make gravy, people put flour to make gravy. Yeah. But um, that's one of those ingredients. Another ingredient that I think is very central or different pe different places use different ingredients. So the sassafras plant. Mm-hmm. In the Carolinas, it wasn't used quite as much, not for a thickener. But it, what it was used for in the Carolinas for, like, medicine, for, like, tea. So for our listeners out there, when he says a thickener, like your filet like in your, your filet, gumbo. Like your filet in your gumbo. Where in Louisiana, it's, a, it's used as a thickener, uh, just like okra can be used as a thickener. And some people are like, I don't like okra. I don't, it's slimy. Like, but that's the thickener agent of okra. I like to say is the original gluten-free roux. <laughs> That's a good sales pitch. The original gluten-free roux. So maybe maybe the okra and the uh, filet uh, board will call me. And maybe they call you. Can... <laughs> maybe you get a cut. But, you know, when we think about that and, you know, we didn't have flour and we have things like 
these the indigenous cultures are introducing us to like sassafras and we're seeing the ochre coming over and both seem to kind of have this like gelatinous texture if it's especially if it's overused but it's kind of the the cook in the tradition who have learned how to make it and balance it out yeah it's a it's an art form to balance it out and it's kind of even i look at um like barbecue, I look at it as it's an art form to it. I at one time I didn't think it was I just thought everybody could do barbecue. It took me coming to Louisiana to kind of get a gain a deeper appreciation of the barbecue culture that I grew up with. I thought you so we don't do it as good as y'all do in the Carolinas. Is that what I won't say I won't say that, but when I was looking for something, I was looking for what I remember back home and it wasn't what I remember. Right. Well, so let's let's talk barbecue because, you know, there is a big debate in barbecue depending upon where you are and who you are. And every home cook, just like everybody's got their own gumbo and everybody's got their own crawfish boil recipe, they have their own opinion on should it be brine? Should it be wet? Should it be dry? What kind of wood are you going to use? What are the rules in your opinion to getting to that end result that is good barbecue. Low and slow is the main rule for barbecue, a main rule of mine. What I would say, where I grew up at, barbecue was always defined as whole hog, pit cooked whole hog. It was never considered ribs, never considered chicken. You always had to use the word barbecue chicken, barbecue ribs. That makes sense. I never really considered that, but yes. You couldn't use Barbecue, you couldn't use barbecue by itself where I'm from because people, they came to your house and you say you had barbecue, they expect to see a whole hog laid out on the table. Kind of like if somebody, I say we're having a cochon delay, they do not want a pork butt on a a barbecue pit. They do not want to see a pork butt on a barbecue pit. No, do not at all. And so that's kind of like what I would say is pretty prevalent. And what I would say furthermore, we we see all these different divisions in barbecue in this country, but over about 50 years ago, there was not much difference in barbecue across the American South. I mean, I could show people pictures or a project I'm working on one of these days that people will see. Like, I'm going to clearly show American barbecue across the American South look pretty identical. Now, so what From do you Texas, think is causing that evolution or that change? I think the evolution comes from people moving to cities, urban areas. Oh, well, not urban areas. I would say cities. They move into cities, and when they move to cities, you can't do things the same way. Technology is evolving. Uh, manufacturing processes are improving. So you, you you bring innovation to your cooking process. You shouldn't always do it the same way if you got better equipment. I mean, I know I cook it. People say, how are you cooking an old-style way and you're an engineer? And I know you know more innovative techniques. Yes, I know more innovative techniques, and I would apply it and build something for you, like Amy, for example, make it more innovative so it won't be so hard. But I also believe it's important to make sure people understand what the past looked like because you at least you have a roadmap to get back to because in some innovation innovative processes, if power goes out, can you still cook? <laughs> I need fire and I can, but I know people if they don't have fire, I mean even with fire they can't cook because they they're cook. used to plugging in the burner. They're plugging in the burner. So it's, I think there's a lesson to be learning that you're always having some kind of benchmarking from the past to hold on to. So it sounds like, you know, for you personally, it's about, you know, preserving the historical elements in food and making sure that we're not losing the roots of it. Yeah, make sure we don't lose the roots of it because we need to have that blueprint. 
if it never if that blueprint is lost, we could ever go never go back. And you appreciate this is cooking like different foods, just simple ingredients such as corn. If we lose our old heirloom seeds or, or tomatoes, for example, since I did an episode of Nourish, you look at these old tomato seeds. If we lose those old tomato seeds, we can never go back to that particular tomato. But if we always, if somebody or two or three people keep that old tomato seed going, we always have that tomato seed to put into our pot and bring that flavor back if we ever lose it. I couldn't think of anything worse than only having the choice for the rest of my life of a pale, flavorless tomato. That's the worst thing you could ever have. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. I mean, as it is, I, my tomatoes don't even make it to the house because they're so good when they're still warm, warm from the vine <laughs> With a little bit of salt. And, and you don't necessarily need the salt, but it's just so good, that warmth. The warmness that it flavor it brings. It is perfect. And so, I mean, that is like if I think summertime, I'm thinking picking those warm tomatoes, picking those delicious berries. Like those, berries, blueberries, all strawberries. All those flavors. And it, it really makes me sad whenever I might like go to a grocery store and I'll have a, a young person at the register and they'll look at me and they'll go, what is this? And you realize you want to they haven't had a fresh vegetable in a long time, and that it they don't appreciate the flavor of how delicious it could be. They they don't. It hurts, um, and it's kind of like me eating fish. Like I don't really eat a, a lot of fillet fish. I prefer to eat the whole fish with the bones in it because, therefore, I know all the flavor is there when you're cooking it. You get some flavor. You benefit from the flavor coming from out the bones, but you don't get any fillet. But a lot of a lot of people don't eat fillet fish, and so it's kind of the same thing with some of these fresh vegetables. Like I don't buy peaches anymore at the grocery store. No. If I can't get it at the farmer's market, that may pay a little more. I just have to suck it up. No, I feel I I totally feel you on that because there are some things. That just because of the logistics of transporting them, they're losing flavor. They're they may look beautiful, beautiful. and pretty. They look they look great. <laughs> I mean, these peaches they're like yellow, reddish, and they're smooth. But you go to the farmers market, you might have a reddish yellow peach, but it has some green and black spots on the outside. That one's the one I'm picking, and that's the one I want to pick <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so let's talk a little bit because you've gone from you know rocket scientist. To cool barbecue dude, to now you're like on TV and you're talking about food and you're you're sharing your stories. So, what? Tell everybody about your show. So I'm hosting this new show with PBS Digital Studios called Nourish, and it's talk about food, culture, and science of the American South. And I, I'm biased, and I know I'm biased about this show, but I feel like Southern food is American food once it is combined and um. I think people are really fascinated by Southern food, but I think it's, I want people to get about Southern food. It's a deeper story than just like fried chicken. It's a deeper story than just barbecue in and of itself, barbecue ribs. It's a deep story to like grits, um, cornbread. It's all all these different debates. Do you put sugar? Do you don't put sugar? (laughs) Do you do the same thing with grits? I have oh heard, Lord, put sugar I, in grits. I, I no. don't do it, but I, I I have heard of people who who do put sugar in their grits, and I like that's like cereal. 
That's just wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. I can't approve of that. I mean, I do some different things with grits, and I mean, I put cheese in grits. I'll put tomatoes in grits. I put ketchup in grits. I don't know if that ketchup in grits is probably something you may not be familiar I, with. You know, hey, ketchup is what it is, right? <laughs> but it, it was one. Of, I think one of those things that, like, if you didn't have stewed tomatoes, ketchup was one of these things that were available. So people went to put in ketchup in grits. Well, I did learn, and I, I joke, oh, it's wrong to have sugar and grits. But I, I went to a thing at Grow That Youth Farm. and I'm on a board they, over there. They, oh, well, they taught me something that I said, you know, I'm going to steal this. And they look, they have a big sign, and it says, don't yuck my yum. And so if I think it's yummy and delicious, don't tell me it's yuck. You know, let me enjoy my food. And if it's if I tell you that broccoli is delicious, don't say yuck. And if you tell me that ketchup's delicious, don't say yuck. Let's all just don't knock it until let's you try just it. <laughs> enjoy food. And you know, I don't think we do enough of that sometimes. I think we all enjoy food, but I think food also is about the bringing people together over food and the conversations you can have over food. Food is one of those things that no matter what your background is, you have to do. You need it. Whether you're rich, Everybody poor, eats. black, white, green, orange, you have to eat. And the conversations over food is a powerful thing. And that's one of the things I really like about Nourish, the conversations I get to have with different people, whether they're chefs, home cooks. That I, could, I like to speak to people who are experts in their subject matter. Um, people may say I'm an expert on these topics, but I want you to hear from somebody who grew up in the middle of that community because I may be an expert based on research and what I have read, but it's a different level of expertise when you grew up in that community, you grew up in that culture. And so that's the reason I try to find people, and the people I have met are, I feel like they're an expert on that one topic. Or not that one topic, but they're an expert of a, a dish that's in that community. So what do you do whenever you have two people of differing opinions who claim to be experts on one thing? What did I do? <laughs> Um, what did I do when I have two people who are experts in there? I guess that where I use the research to delineate their <laughs> argument. <laughs> I have to put in my bias or my research of what I feel is true because I, I believe I want to speak from a point of accuracy. I want If I have facts to back it up, I want to speak from that point of view. And that's the scientist in him, the data-driven response, <laughs> the right? The data-driven <laughs> response. Well, so why don't you tell everybody when they can hear the show and how they can... So the show comes on two digital platforms. Well, I think it's more than two digital platforms. It's come on YouTube, YouTube forward slash PBS Nourish. Oh, let me say www.youtube.com forward slash PBS Nourish. Um, it also comes on Facebook Watch. I think for those who have like Passport, PBS Passport, Hulu, Roku, you can all see it on those platforms. Um, so it's, what are, it's, it's what are on, some of the upcoming topics? We have two or three more topics. Let's see. What have I talked about so far? We talked about whole hog barbecue. We talked about gumbo with Miss Leah Chase. I, I don't think anybody had questioned her no. expertise. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um we talked to Rodney Scott about barbecue sauces. I don't think anybody questioned his his uh, expertise on that subject. We talked to B.J. Dennis on the Gullah Geechee culture. B.J. Dennis and Kendra Joy. We talked to Chef Hardett Harris about hot water or cornbread, which is very debated, and hot water cornbread. I know I'm leaving somebody else out. We, we talked about 
uh, we got an episode coming out, I believe. The next one, I think y'all will find it really fascinating. A lot of people eat dishes, but they don't understand the processes that go into it. Oh, we had a tomato episode, which was fabulous. I mean, I was kind of shocked with their internet response to that. Almost awesome. 10 million views on Facebook. Wow, congratulations. So, thank you. I was really shocked, but it, I think a lot of people resonated with that. The warm tomato, eating it with salt, just a mater sandwich, I think it really resonated. I, I just gave you all what I thought tomato culture was, but I had an expert in, John, Mr. John Corkendall from Blackberry Farms in Tennessee, who could really allude to, like, seed saving and the importance of it and why, like, these old crops are even heirlooms. But I think the next episode will be about making grits and cornmeal. Yeah. From a scientist's point of view. You know how you make grits? Tell me how you make no, grits. No, you tell me how you make <laughs> I grits. Say, I just think you just crush down. You have. You probably have to treat the corn. I'm not sure. And then you probably grind it down. But I wouldn't. I don't know. I buy my grits. <laughs> you buy your grits. You buy your grits. I mean, I cook my grits, but I buy my cornmeal and I make my grits. <laughs> okay. Do you buy the grits that took, take five minutes no, to cook? No, I know. Uh, and even if you do, you wouldn't admit it on the radio. <laughs> I don't. I just want to put it out there. I, I mean, make, my cousin Vinny taught us that. Yeah, cousin, okay, I take that. But no, um, making grits is a very scientific process. You have a lot of friction involved. You have a lot of um, densities with separation of grains, uh, filtering sizes. It's a lot into making grits or cornmeal. And, it, and since that's such a pivotal thing, ingredient in the South, I think it's important to really talk about that. I, and I love that. I can't wait to see that episode because I get into conversations with people all the time and uh, they may be from out of town and they're like, I don't eat grits. And I'll say, do you eat polenta? And they go, yeah. And I go, okay, that's fancy yellow grits, you know, or whatever. I, I, you know? I, one thing I heard somebody say, I eat hominy, hominy, hominy grits. And they're like, you're eating grits. You know, sometimes it's just the semantics of things. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much. This has been so fun. I could sit and talk about food all day long, and that's kind of what we do on this show. So I really appreciate you coming in. For my listeners out there, we had Mr. or Dr. Howard Conyers here in the studio. Check out his show on PBS called Nourish. And uh, keep an eye out for all the fun and exciting things. And uh, oh, I've got to, I've got to yeah. talk about one thing. I will say it. We've we got to talk about gumbo jubilee because I'm cooking a whole cow in New Orleans. A whole cow? Okay, yeah, we got time to stand. Tell me about that real quick. So I'm cooking a whole cow because in all the barbecue literature, I heard about African, enslaved Africans cooking whole cows. I asked my father about it. He said, we never cooked the whole cow. We only cooked pigs. And so to cook a whole cow and manage that kind of weight, take some kind of device. And so being an engineer, getting to put a little engineering to test to reveal a device to actually handle, help rotate the cow so we could cook a whole cow. And since New Orleans is celebrating 300 years of cooking, I want people to understand the enslaved African contribution of foods in Louisiana. We've having a, a variety of different chefs from across the country coming in. Um, October 20th, tickets can be found on this website from the low country to the bayou. Uh, we have DJ Jubilee being the DJ because he's just such a pivotal icon in the music scene in New Orleans to the country. Uh, some of the sh local chefs we have, Chris Haynes, Miss Linda, Linda Green. We have BJ Dennis from Charleston. We have Adrian Lipscomb from out of Lacombe. Um, 
Not Minnesota. I can't think of the state right now. But, but I mean, either way, it sounds like a really awesome. Ty Richards lineup. coming in. Yeah, I like that's. I like him. Ty Richards coming in to cook. Uh, Keith Rose is coming in. Well, we hope. We, we hope. We hope. <laughs> he was supposed to come in. We hope he stills coming. Um, so it's gonna be fabulous. I mean, I think it's just gonna be an event like I have done series events before, like the Gullah and Creole Family Union. This is a much bigger, but it's gonna be an intimate affair still. Um, but I'm excited for you all, people, to see the culture of Louisiana doing this. I'm gonna have a Zydeco band. I'm gonna have Mardi Gras Indians. I'm gonna have a second line band, a brass band. So it's gonna be everything. It sounds to- like a party, it's- and I know our listeners will be excited to get out there. And so check it out on uh, Low Country to the Bayou. From the Low Country to the Bayou. And again, thank you so much for coming in studio. You have been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. I've been in the studio with Dr. Howard Conyers. This is your host, Chef Amy Sense. Until next time, ciao.